five, four, three, two, one, zero. All engine running. Liftoff. We have a liftoff. Hello, space enthusiasts. Welcome to another episode of the Space Business Podcast where we investigate all the exciting ways in which people participate in the new space economy by conversations with entrepreneurs, executives, investors and other members of the space family. My name is Raphael Rodkin and I'm an investor in and advisor to space companies. Just as a reminder, this podcast is for informational purposes only and nothing should be taken as investment advice. This podcast is sponsored by Nanoavionics a satellite bus manufacturer and mission integrator. Their satellite technologies enable many space companies worldwide to offer services that improve life here on Earth, such as providing global connectivity, conducting Earth observation for various purposes, or contributing to scientific discoveries. Check them out and also check out my episode with their CEO and co-founder. Sadly, I am not a rocket scientist, but I'm an alumnus of the International Space University, or ISU, which is also our partner in this podcast. ISU offers a number of educational programs about space worldwide, ranging from executive courses lasting a few days all the way to a one-year master's. Check them out at isunet.edu. So we all hope that in the future we will increasingly move around a lot more in space, including to go more often to places like the Moon, Mars and even beyond. We need in-space propulsion to do that. My guests this week, the co-founders of Neutron Star Systems, are working exactly on that. Specifically, they're using a superconductor-enabled plasma propulsion system. That's a mouthful, but we're with us. As always, we are keeping things non-technical. My guests Manuel and Marcus did a great job explaining their work in an engaging and easy-to-follow way. Enjoy. Hey everybody, I'm here today with my guests Manuel La Rosa Betancourt and Marcus Collier Wright from Neutron Star Systems. They're the co-founders of the company and respectively CEO and CTO. Welcome guys. Thank you. Thanks for having us, Rafa. It's a pleasure to have you guys. Um, why don't we start off as as always with a short elevator pitch on, on Neutron Star Systems, please. Yeah, um, so Neutron Star Systems, we're a startup based out of Cologne in Germany. And we are pioneering the commercialization of superconductors in space. Superconductors are lightweight, they're very efficient, they're very compact, and they can enable much higher powers on spacecraft. With this, we aim to enable a whole new set of space missions, increase the efficiency of missions, reduce their cost. And we are going to apply this technology for electric propulsion systems, for radiation shielding, for re-entry shielding, and for power management and distribution. Wow, that's, that's a lot of things to talk about. So... So superconductors, that sounds ex extremely high tech. And of course, we are, you know, a podcast that's targeted at a at a broad audience. <laughs> There's quite a few people who may not actually know what, you know, superconductors are. Can you just guys just take a little step back and maybe explain some of the basics in, you know, sort of layman's terms? And then also related to that, I mean, how did you guys get into this? Is this something you worked with in the past? I'm going to take that one, Rafael. Superconductors are uh, an enabling technology, and they have been researched since over 30 years. Just to put a chart, superconductors have the quality of transmitting tremendous amounts of power, of current, in very, very small surfaces and uh, in a very compact lightweight you see a tape, a superconductor tape is, you know, like the standard tape that you use to, you know, tape papers on your desk, more or less of that size, can carry up to 800 amps per square millimeter. That gives you an advantage, which is you can upscale power. 
You can upscale power and platforms for uh, transportation, cargo ships, cruise ships, navy ships, also for defense. Or you can upscale power for transportation or propulsion in aviation, planes, 300 passengers planes, big planes like A350 from Airbus, for example. That kind of plane needs a lot of power to take off. So in space, you can use it also in electric propulsion systems, especially for high-powered operations. And to put it into context, if you have a car, you need an electrical motor of 200, 200 kilowatts you could use, an electrical motor for a car. If you have a thruster for a geocommunication satellite, for 5G, for example, you will have something like 20 kilowatts of electrical thruster or electrical, yeah propulsion system. So uh, a ship, for example, a submarine will be 20 megawatts. So just to put some some numbers into context. So uh, superconductors, they don't have a resistance to current, so they can, they're fully efficient. And uh, you don't have power heat losses associated with the transportation of energy through a conductor. When you look at copper as a conventional technology, you have losses, power heat losses of on this copper um, that associated to the current that is being transmitted mm-hmm. on this material. So they are important for space because they are extremely lightweight. And with this, you can save uh, millions on launching cost due to the reduction of the electric propulsion system. But you also can save millions on other type of a spacecraft system. And I'm gonna, uh, as Marcus mentioned before, you know, um, we start with electric propulsion systems, uh, especially plasma thrusters. Uh, in our case, is uh, AFMPD, well-known research technology worldwide. But you also have, for example, power management and distribution systems, especially for high-power missions, missions for going to the moon, crew Mars missions or cargo missions, especially high-power platforms for geosatellites that are about 25, up to 25 kilowatts. They might have power management and distributions applications that are quite heavy and also uh, not very efficient. And, and so coming back to the superconductors, and I'm going to sort of expose myself as a total layman here. I think the last exposure I had to superconductors was sometime back in high school. And because I'm a little <laughs> bit older, it, it involved basically using liquid liquid nitrogen to like super cool, uh, I think a ceramic material. I assume we've come like a long way from those days. And it, it is indeed like that. They have been advanced in terrestrial markets quite far. So they have a high degree of maturity. Now a superconductor uh, tape is done in a fully uh, automated process with different multilayers and uh, very high standards of uh, um, production and quality control. And the cryocoolers use, the cryocoolers technology, they can be buy as, as off-the-shelf cryocoolers. You see, nowadays, getting a superconducting coil integrated with a cryocooler is something that you can basically buy almost everywhere. So they have gotten that level of economies of scale for some applications. There are, of course, other applications that require more work, but uh, the, the advancement is quite high. And you have a very large superconductor industry worldwide. You have large superconductor producers in China, 
Korea, Japan, the United States, and also in Europe, we have one in Germany. The industry is getting there to the levels of economies of scale. And still, when you compare with conventional technologies for current or power transmission, the price per meter is still a bit far away to compete with copper. But for some applications, it really brings value. It really brings improvement of performance and efficiency. Good example I can give you now, for example, is the fusion reactors, tokamak. It wouldn't be possible without superconductors. Other examples will be wind power generators. So there are interesting applications uh, for superconductors terrestrially. And in space, they have been started to be embraced, slowly but surely, we could say. And so let's let's go into space. And you mentioned sort of your first application of the superconductors was in an electric propulsion system. So again, let's take a step back here because we're the layman's podcast. Could you just give us sort of uh, maybe remind us of a quick overview of the land of in-space propulsion systems? I, I guess the big categories are basically chemical and electric, probably without going into too much detail, just sort of a quick overview also with, within the electric propulsion field, because obviously we have like a, a few different um, things there, like electrothermal, electrostatic, um, and things like that. Yeah, this is, uh, this is my, my area now. Yeah, so the key distinction you made there, Raphael, was in-orbit propulsion. Um, and that's the first thing you have to look at. When people think space propulsion, they think rockets. And that's, of course, a booming thing. And you need a rocket to get into space. But once you get to space, you have more options. You don't need to go with the same chemical systems. The problem with these is that they're very inefficient. And once you're in space, that would mean that anywhere between two-thirds and three-quarters of your spacecraft would have to be fuel mass, which is completely uneconomic. There, the option then is to use electric systems, which are much more efficient. You have a much better utilization of the fuel. And that means that for your in-orbit transfer, you maybe only need 10 to 20% of the spacecraft mass to be fuel. Now, this isn't completely new. Electric propulsion systems have been around for at least 50 years. They are now getting much more popular. We're starting to see the first all-electric satellites without any chemical propulsion systems. And uh, there's a lot of companies now, both legacy space companies, which have been around for a long time, and also startups like us getting involved on the scene. Uh, you mentioned a few different types of electric thruster systems. Um, there's three main types, electrothermal, where you use electricity to heat the propellant and accelerate it a bit like a rocket. Electrostatic, which is using the electrostatic force to accelerate a plasma uh, or the ions in the plasma. And electromagnetic, which is using an electromagnetic force. And that's what we're doing. In terms of the landscape, I would divide it into three parts. I divide it into low power, which is where you have CubeSats and small satellites. And this is where a lot of the startups like Impulsion, like Exotrail, uh, are currently operating and uh, coming with economies of scale, coming with uh, repeated manufacturing and accessing constellations. You have then what we'd call medium power, where you have the likes of Aerojet Rocketdyne, Safran Group, um, and some of the Russians. Fackel. Fackel, for example. And this is for satellites on the order of about a ton or two tons. You might have for navigation and geocommunication satellites. And now you have an emerging, uh, but rapidly emerging high power market. Uh, and this is now for the larger satellites currently in orbit are about six to eight tons. But we have really big missions coming in the next few years, like the Lunar Gateway, which will be 50 kilowatts of electric thruster power. The Mars sample return from the European Space Agency, which will be 45 kilowatts of power. For example, the Russians have just invested 50 million euros on developing a nuclear-powered 
space tug, which will transport 10 tons of cargo to the moon. So that market is now really starting to open up and there's a lot of missions now being planned in that direction. And that is where our technology really shines. The issue you have with the previous technologies is that they're reliant on a propellant, which is xenon. It's very expensive. It costs 2,000 euros per kilo. It's very rare. There's not enough demand to fulfill the supply over the next 10 years. And it's not really sustainable. Our thrust, on the other hand, operates on argon, which is 100 times cheaper. It's far more available. It's also much more scalable. So we can go up to these higher power classes without having any significant mass penalty, without having a significant volume penalty, and that's thanks to the superconductors. And that's where we see that we have really the most unique offering on the market. Maybe let's cut in with a couple of comments there. So uh, I think, again, um, for the layman out there, one thing I wanted to have mentioned is some people might be wondering why we don't use electric propulsion to basically send rockets off Earth. And uh, correct me if I'm wrong, the quick answer is basically they don't produce enough thrust to overcome Earth's gravity. I think that's as simple as that. That's why we can't use electric propulsion to get to space, but we can use it in space where we don't have to overcome the gravity. And then um, you started mentioning an interesting topic, Marcus, which is about the propellants. And the xenon is the traditional one. Yes, you mentioned very expensive. I think for completeness, we should mention um, some people now trying to use Krypton, clearly an element with a very cool name, Krypton. <laughs> and I, I think SpaceX is using Krypton. You, you may kind of expand a little bit of, you know, you see the advantages, disadvantages there. And I thought, correct me if I'm wrong, that there was some, um, actually, particularly plasma drives that are actually almost um, propound agnostic and that you can put various things in there. Yeah, that's correct. Um, so firstly, regarding Krypton, yes, this is sort of, I would call it a partial solution. It's still expensive. It's not as expensive as Xenon, but it's, it's still expensive. And the issue with Krypton is that, uh, at least for the thrusters currently in space, the penalty of using Krypton is that the performance is quite reduced and your efficiency is lower. So you, you don't really get such a good performance for your spacecraft. There are a few technologies, um, both at high power and low power, which, like you mentioned, are propellant agnostic. And ours is actually one of those technologies. So argon, we mentioned as the main propellant, which we want to use, but we have a lot of other alternatives. We can operate with uh, ammonia, for example, with hydrazine, with hydrogen, with nitrogen, and several others as well. So that's where we also see ourselves fitting in in this shift in the industry, away from xenon, away from krypton, to these other propellants, um, which is then also going to be supported, for example, by the ability to mine and generate propellants from in-space uh, resources. It fits in on that one as well. That, that, that is interesting, just continuing for a minute on the propellant thing. So if you're propellant agnostic, I always remember the story from this this Australian startup, you guys might know, Newman Space, and they, I think they're also propellant agnostic, and they were joking around. I don't know if they did that in the end, but they wanted to test their engine with beer at some point. <laughs> Should really look up whether they did that or not. Buddy have a very nice sense of humor. I like Buddy. Uh, <laughs> I love the Aussies. <laughs> I'd like to try running our thruster on beer, but probably not let us near the test chamber with a. With a <laughs> Honestly, though, if it's if it's if it's a crude, if it ends up being a crude spacecraft, I think if we bring a tank of beer to space, it's not going to be used for propellant. I mean. <laughs> no, <laughs> no. But the, the thing about propellant, and I wanted I wanted to add something there, uh, Rafael, is, is as 
Marcos measures the in situ, in situ resource utilization. Yeah. Especially for moon operations, the capability of producing water or taking the ice in the moon and then uh, with means of electrolysis and uh, other processes, we can produce hydrogen and oxygen and mixes of hydrogen and oxygen. It could be fantastic because um, supreme thrusters can be also operated on hydrogen. And uh, actually, they, they showed a very interesting ISPs specific impulse by the use of uh, propellant such as uh, hydrogen. And something that Marcos did not mention was the use of, uh, for example, these and other things like lithium, you see, which are like solid mm. metal. And uh, this, this type of propellant um, have been used for many, many years in Russia and the United States, you see for very large power uh, AF MPD, so for really the big mission. So I think that, you know, with such a propellant flexibility and the scalability that give you thrusters from one kilowatt up to thousand kilowatt, you have a pretty good standardized turnkey solution that you can really shift, you know, move around your different type of spacecraft and mission scenarios. And so, just last question on propellants, because if I heard this correctly, you mentioned you could also use even hydrazine and ammonia and things like that. I guess in theory, then you could almost build a like a dual propulsion system, right, where you use one tank of, um, let's say, hydrazine, and it could either go into the into your thrusted supreme for electric propulsion, but you can, of course, also use hydrazine for classic chemical propulsion, right? Yeah, I'm very glad you brought that up. This is a system architecture we've been exploring with um, one of our customers. What, you, what you're talking about is typically called a hybrid propulsion system, and it's giving you the option to use both high thrust thrusters, like chemical systems, and high specific impulse thrusters, like electric systems. This gives you a huge amount of operational flexibility. In several mission cases, it can actually increase the amount of payload that you can deliver to your final orbit. The problem has always been that traditionally you need two separate systems and two separate propellant tanks, two separate feeding systems, and this is heavy, this is uh, complicated, and there's reliability issues. And what we can do is just really compact them and integrate them together, improve the simplicity, and this gives you then a lot of benefits, for example, uh, for collision avoidance. Imagine you're a spacecraft in the very densely populated uh, LEO like we have now. Um, you know, you you want to have efficient operation so that you don't need too much fuel, but you want to have the ability to also make an avoidance maneuver if, if there's a collision on its way. And a hybrid system with our thruster would give you that capability. Yeah, I guess that's here we should open the quick bracket um, again for the general listener on sort of the, I guess what generally people would call the, the trade-off between thrust and, and specific impulse or sort of like the force which you can move and then I guess call it efficiency for the lack of a better word. And, and sorry, just correct me if I say anything wrong, but sort of traditionally people would say, okay, chemical propulsion, basically high thrust, but much lower ISP, right? Like a few hundred seconds. And, and then um, electric propulsion, you can get like thousands of seconds of ISP, so very high efficiency, but, but also very, very low thrust again, which is the reason why we can't use electric propulsion to get, get off Earth. Where does the, the supreme, your thruster, sit in that matrix? Well, yeah, we're up towards the higher ISP end, um, and again, thanks to this uh, propellant flexibility, but also thanks to the inherent throttleability of our system, we can operate over a very wide range of different impulses. Um, so we can go anywhere from about 1,500 seconds uh, with argon, uh, all the way up to even as high as 12,000 seconds with hydrogen, and uh, pretty much anywhere in between with the different propellants that we can use. 
So that also gives us a lot of flexibility to use the thrust on different missions which have different needs. And maybe could you explain in as simple as uh, terms as possible, so how does the, the AF-MPD actually work? How does it, you know, produce thrust? I'm going to explain it to the way I explain it to my mother in Venezuela. And, 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 your, and your mother is not a rocket scientist. So we should... No, no. <laughs> no, so, uh, and I explain, like, well, my mother, and I explain my mother, listen, imagine you want to move from Caracas to Maracaibo and you want to move all your house with you. If you're going to have a truck that moves all your furniture, you will need a motor for that truck. You will never put a motor for that truck that corresponds to a Fiat or to a Mini, you see, because that will be the equivalent of using the current technology for such application. The motor that we do is the type of motor that you need to move a lot of weight. Is a high thrust density motor. I think that in terms of very simple way, we do like motors for plasma, um, uh, plasma motors for space trucks, or for you know for trans transporting big payloads. In terms of the technology itself, I told her, well, imagine you have a battery and you have a magnet. You see, and they are concentrically put together. So the in the battery, you have a discharge, and this discharge heat ups the gas, the propellant that is coming through the battery, and then this propellant is converted and transformed into plasma, and then the magnet accelerate this plasma. But uh, I was never able to enter into the acceleration mechanisms, Raphael, with my mother, because at that, po at that point I lost her. <laughs> And, and basically, you throw out for simplicity. I mean, simply said, you, you you throw out irons the back of the engine, and then it's it's nothing more than Newton's third law, basically, right? It's uh, pretty much with one important correction: we're not throwing out just ions; we're throwing out the whole plasma. Uh, and this is important. And you know, it may seem like a technical, non-layman thing, but it's important because. <laughs> yeah. um, The technologies today, they only do the ions, and this means you have to have extra components which neutralize. Like a cathode. Like a cathode, exactly. Okay. And uh, we don't need to have this separate component. Um, so that also which which uh, means it's like lower complexity, lower maintenance, uh, lower uh, less um, lower risk of failure and so forth. Precisely. Okay. And the, the plasma, while it's still in the engine, is it like is, is it very hot? Do you have to contain it or? Yeah, it is hot. 2,000 Kelvin, 1,750 degrees, higher than the melting temperature of many 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 materials. So, so you leave it in touch with the you you use some of these um, uh, materials with a high melting point, and you leave the plasma in touch. I guess what I was what I was going to ask is whether you have to somehow I don't know magnetically confine the plasma or do something like absolutely. That. It has to be magnetically confined. Okay. And this confinement limits the interaction between the plasma and, and, and the nozzle or yeah. the itself. The good news is that the confinement of the plasma is actually goes hand in hand with the operation of the thruster. Sure. Uh, it confines it. The stronger we put the field, the more it confines it, uh, the less our materials get heated up and uh, the more performance we get out of the thruster. So it's really a win-win situation for us. Yeah. So the magnetic confinement a little bit sounds like you guys mentioned nuclear fusion before. I guess it's a little bit like confining the uh, the plasma in the fusion reactor, is it? Maybe perhaps on a high level. I'd say, I mean, if we go deep into the techniques, um, the processes are quite different. Uh, nonetheless, fusion is quite relevant for us simply because there's a lot of supporting technologies which have been developed for fusion. 
which we can take advantage of and transfer into space. Uh, the coils being one example, but also the materials that are used for uh, withstanding the high temperatures of the plasma, and um, also some of the connections for the electrical techniques, for example. So for us, that's always an area we're looking at, the latest R&D, and we're seeing how we can incorporate that to improve our product. Just wanted to add to this, uh, I mean, the plasmas that you have in fusion are much, much harder. I think. Yeah level of million degrees. But we're replicating the sun after all. Let's move a little bit away from, from the deep technical side. Probably uh, a lot of our listeners will be happy to hear. Yeah, yeah, we have to do that. <laughs> <laughs> and sort of given what we just all talked about and sort of the characteristics of um, your of your drive, where, where do you see the key customer groups? Like, for example, is it, you know, people like you mentioned who need a little bit more power, like, you know, geostationary or interplanetary missions? Or, or is this also useful on like, you know, like a LEO constellation? I'm going to do the distinction of two, two types of users, the public or governmental users and the private users. Yeah. So I tell you about the public, especially space agencies. Space agencies need this product, especially if they want to look at the issue of a space weather monitoring and forecasting of solar weather events. This is an interesting kind of like an entry market for this. And then in the size of scientific missions and sample return missions, I think it's, it's worth to look at sample return missions uh, with electric propulsion and uh, to evaluate this. Also from the defense and government, uh, we see that for sustaining multi-domain and multinational operations, at a government level, in platforms like NATO, for example. The use of a communal standard technology for geocommunication constellations can be of interest. And that is something that we have been also pushing and, and talking to NATO, etc., and some, some, some defense ministries somewhere. On the private side, we can get we can get the ones of uh, Elon Musk and Bezos uh, even more richer <laughs> than they are now. <laughs> you see, if uh, they are planning to bring, for example, uh, cargo transfers to the moon within the Artemis program, electric propulsion missions and systems that can be upscalable can reduce this mission cost on billions. You see, making that what they're doing even more attractive and also supporting upscaling of space infrastructures. I think on the private sector, we also see small satellite constellations as a really nice way to go, especially on the one to three kilowatt power range, lightweight, agile, small satellites, uh, something that uh, is going to be needed in LEO. And for the likes of astrobotics, for example, landers, uh, people that are bringing payloads to the moon, we can increase the amount of payload that they can really deliver there um, if uh, some kind of uh, mission architectures are considered where you integrate electric propulsion. So um, this is where we see ourselves, especially on um, near-term, mid-term-wise, uh, and uh, moon missions uh, uh, looks really good. And uh, I think there's a lot of potential there. The more interesting part for the sample return is also um, the use of superconductors outside the electric propulsion system, but for the re-entry part. So if you're going to Mars and you want to bring back some Mars rocks, like the Europeans and NASA want to do, at the moment, they're using a heat shield, which is weighing about 30% of the total mass of the probe. It's a huge amount. 
Uh, if you replace this with a superconducting electromagnetic shield, uh, like we're doing on one of our EU projects, then this can be significantly reduced. So you save yourself a lot of money. You increase the amount of rocks that you can bring back. And um, another idea that we've had or we have in mind for the use of superconductors potentially to, to launch things off, off other planets like the moon or Mars is you can use superconductors for a railgun, which uses uh, electromagnetic forces to then to launch your payloads and your, and your samples. This one's a little bit more of the early stage. But, you know, the more you look into these missions, the more you realize exactly superconductors can be used for a lot of different things. Yeah, especially for doing launchings from the moon. There are already some preliminary concepts for using railgun type of systems for doing launching. You see, you can you can store as much power as you want in a superconducting magnetic energy storage device at the level of several gigajoules. This is this is powered enough to 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 really propel a substantial payload to be you know launched to Mars uh, from the moon or to other planets. That, that, that sounds certainly really cool, like a giant giant railgun. I guess, again, we have to take a step back and say, like, people might be wondering, why are we not having a cool giant railgun on Earth uh, instead of rocket? For some reasons, again, so we have an, we have an atmosphere, which probably uh, <laughs> would cause some problems if we accelerate something really fast into the atmosphere. Uh, you know, I wanted to say something. I was looking at, you know, several of the missions, etc., all this moon activity, and I was wondering about the fact that we spend these billions of dollars and euros on bringing just a couple of hundreds of kilos. You see, when uh, what we need to be is, is we need to enable large operations in the moon, mining operations, robotic operations, and for that we need to bring payload. We need to bring a container full of robots that do exploration or uh, nano or drones that do, you know, mapping for resources, this kind of stuff. But we go like always in an evolutionary way, one and one. And um, I think that the beauty of electrics, electric propulsion and superconductors give you a kind of like a shortcut to accelerate all this process, you see, and get some economies of scale. Space is too damn expensive, Rafael. It's too expensive still. And people do not see the value of it mostly. Yes, and unfortunately, of course, the last few years we have been getting cheaper, and we, like I agree, we have to continue on that downward curve of the cost of accessing space and then operating in space. So let's pick up on that. That's a good question. I forgot to ask you. So let's say we have a, um, you know, a supreme thruster, your system for, I don't know, pick a good example, maybe like a small satellite. I don't know what the right power here is, 500 watts or something. Let's say a communication satellite. Yeah, how much would the thruster cost, and maybe how does that compare to alternative systems? For a geocommunication satellite, the state of the art is, is you normally have a system of four thruster clusters of five kilowatts. Mm-hmm. So the price in the market for then some somewhere between seven and fifteen million euros per unit per potentially in the case of a supreme thruster for geocommunication satellite we are going to use a different configuration because the in-orbit racing will require a a large power thruster, like 20 kilowatts. Mm -hmm. Uh, Those are more expensive than than the one of five kilowatts. And then we will need to have a system of three additional thrusters of five kilowatts to basically enlarge the platform to 35 kilowatts and also to have some redundancy. 
In our case, our electric propulsion system will be compatible, more expensive, uh, you see, in the, indistinctively of uh, uh, what the other costs, what it needs to be evaluated here. The question of the making of the price is, is how much payload can our operator mm -hmm. additionally gain mm -hmm. for his platform, for his satellite? How much power we can provide in order to increase um, throughput through the satellite? So and how much we can, when we go into these higher powers, we actually reduce the time it takes the satellite to get to its final orbit. Yeah. You speak to any geosatellite operator, one of their most annoying parts of the mission is when the satellite's in space and they're just waiting for it to start operating because this is time which they're not generating money. Sure, absolutely. And so let me change tack a little bit. So where are you guys right now with this project? Sort of like, what is your timeline? Have you had a test in space yet? Yeah, so we, uh, the technology is at TRL4. Um, we have a prototype operating in the University of Stuttgart, our main scientific partner. And uh, we have a few options on the table how best to move forward. But what we are planning at the moment is to make a CubeSat demonstration within the next 24 months where we... Um, want to demonstrate the superconductor in space. This is the most exotic part of the system. This is the part which all the uh, more conservative members of the space industry are maybe a little bit more afraid of. Uh, we have full confidence that we're going to get it to work. Uh, but already by 2023, we see we're going to have something operating in space. And uh, we think that this is going to really be the key milestone we need to achieve to then uh, progress with the commercialization of the full system. And this would be like on a customer satellite or like a hosted payload or? Uh, it's a kind of like a hosted payload in order to achieve flight proficiency of uh, one of our major subsystems or core subsystems, Rafael. It's always a question of, uh, you know, when are you going to be uh, having your product in the market? And by building a prototype and having it in a, a lab facility, testing, you still don't have a product. You have a prototype, you have an MVP, but you still don't have a product that you commercialize. You see, and this is this is what uh, we have learned from investors in, you know, in the past months, you know, we have been pitching all, all over the place, etc. You see, it's always this compromise about, you know, whether we go uh, quick and dirty, kind of moonshot approach with a CubeSat demonstration, in orbit demonstration, in two years, or to go with a roadmap where we have an in-orbit demonstration of the whole system in 2025. So those are the two choices we have at the moment. Understood. But speaking speaking of investors, now from all you've said before, this technology obviously has obvious interest as well for um, say missions that are typically only done by space agencies. So I think you have you been able to to access some grants or even contracts from space agencies? Well, yeah. So we we've, we've got two actually we've got two major projects at the moment. Um, the first is an EU grant. Um, this is for the superconducting reentry shielding system. We have a really great consortium. We're one of ten um, several universities and SMEs across Europe. Mm -hmm. We're going to be building a coil. Uh, with a superconducting coil to demonstrate the shielding of the reentry in a in a plasma wind tunnel. Uh, this project is called MEST, M-E-E-S-S-T, and I encourage all your listeners to check it out. The website is MEST.eu. Um, and then we have another project, which is actually a contract, which we secured with the European Space Agency. 
uh, and this is for delivering superconducting cables for uh, scientific instruments. So this is actually a slightly alternate application to what we originally envisaged, but a very good one indeed. Um, some of these science instruments, they need to operate at really low temperatures, um, like almost absolute zero, and you need conductors there to get them work. And um, I think the fact that we've secured this contract uh, says to me that we're now one of the leading companies in Europe for putting superconductors in space. It's the validation that the space agencies are interested in the technology and the validation that we're the right people to be building it. Congratulations on that. That sounds good and good luck with, with executing that. Where are you guys based, by the way? I forgot to ask. Cologne, Germany. Oh, the home of the European Astronaut Center. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. So we have also uh, uh, an office uh, in London. We have excellent relationships with the UK, with the DIT. Uh, we have been accelerated or accepted at the Business Incubation Center in Westcott. And there we're also working in some cooperations for the development of the technology through uh, the University of Cranfield. So uh, we have really good relationships also in the United Kingdom. So we're based on both I mean, is, is the team split between both locations, sort of half-half, or more people in Germany? Yeah. Or you, not half-half. I would say like two-thirds here and one-third in, in the UK. Are you guys hire, hiring right now, by the way? Uh, yeah, we're looking one person for marketing and communication. We need someone, some support at the moment. And uh, at the technical side, we need someone in the area of uh, software, uh, software architecture programming. Okay, we're, we're winding down here um, in, in this episode, so I'm going to ask you the, the final question we always ask. I assume you're science fiction fans as well. Most people are, at least that I talk to on this podcast. And so what would be some of your favorite science fiction? And it could be books, TV shows, um, movies, um, anything. I start with my Battlestar Galactica. Um, ah, love it. Yes. Uh, okay, which which one? The seventies or the remake or both? Both, both, um, both of them. I mean, I I, I saw the one of the seventies. I was a kid, and that was being, being played. Okay, it's not that I'm from the seventies, but, uh, <laughs> but but the remake was also really really good. And well, I like always. I like it always. This kind of like old school type of seventies fonts that they used to call between the chips, etc. And you see that uh, really cool and really nice story. Yeah, that, that, that's that's a good point. Actually, um, it's it's quite entertaining, right? So they they have faster than light propulsion, and they're using basically like phones from the seventies or something. <laughs> yeah, say it's quite interesting. Yeah. Anyway, <laughs> how about you, how about you, Marcus? Uh, so my entry to sci-fi was probably Star Wars, of course. Um, that was always the one I grew up with. Now I'm always looking out for the next sci-fi film and the space film. Uh, for me, my favorite was probably Interstellar a few years ago. Mm. Uh, at the same time, I was doing some project on artificial gravity. Uh, so it was really quite a cool, cool link. Wow. Um, but actually, as a Brit and maybe delving more even into the fantasy side, um, I spent a lot of my childhood watching Doctor Who. I knew you were going to say that. As soon as you said as a Brit, that was pretty obvious. So, um, you know, maybe after, after neutron star systems, I'll try and build a TARDIS and invent <laughs> time travel. But we'll see. <laughs> Terrific. Nick will be the next project. Uh, Raphael, what is your favorite? Uh... <laughs> Wow, no, nobody actually ever asked me, so I guess this this will this will be a first. Um, I think off the top of my head, 
I like really some of the TV series. So mo movies, I would have to think a little bit longer. But I'm I'm a huge Battlestar Galactica fan as well. I think you know what they've done there, sort of also weaving in almost like a philosophical and spiritual element is is hugely interesting. Um, it's also one of the few, I think, sci-fi where they, they, they tackle this sort of like question about um, an AI gone rogue head on. I mean, you, you notice there's a lot of like sci-fi movies where they basically, they're hundreds of years in the future, but for some reason we don't seem to have like very advanced AI. It <laughs> no. does not seem very likely, right? I mean, there's, yeah, there's, yeah, yeah, yeah. There's data I, in Star Trek. At least a couple of them, but... <laughs> yeah. Uh, so Battlestar Galactica, the, the, the new one, well, the remake, right, from the early 2000s, huge fan. It's now, um, I notice it's on Amazon Prime now, and um, it's, I'm re-watching it. It's stealing a lot of my... Really? Uh, okay, yeah. thank you for the tip. So we're all going to be re-watching um, <laughs> ESG. The other one which I love is, is The Expanse, because I just think it's, it's so well-written. It's a, um, I mean, people may think about it what they want, but it's, uh, I think it's a plausible future. I mean, leave, leave aside the alien stuff, that's obviously more out there, but sort of the interplay between um, colonies on the belt, Mars, and, and, and then Earth is, is, is not implausible, I think. And thank you so much for coming on. Um, good luck with your, with your projects. Thank you, and thank you for having And, and uh, I'm glad to chat with you about it, and thank you, Raphael, really. Thank you very much, Raphael. Thanks. Well, that's it for another nominal episode of the Space Business Podcast. If you like this podcast, please consider giving it a five-star rating on your favorite podcast platform, such as iTunes. You can follow us on Twitter at podcast underscore space. Also consider supporting us at www.patreon.com forward slash space business podcast. If the podcast got you interested in learning more about the business opportunities in the space economy, check out my new online course on space entrepreneurship on udemy.com. The link is in the episode description. Lastly, if you have any feedback, including ideas for guests, and that may include yourself if you have an exciting space story to tell, or interested in being a sponsor, drop us an email at spacebusinesspodcast at gmail.com. I look forward to seeing you for the next episode.